And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, April 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, got thoughts on how to manage in the government? There's a contest for that. Plus, new plans to categorize Americans for the census could leave out one important group. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the numbers of mergers and acquisitions among government services contractors has climbed steadily upward over the last 10 years or so. 2021 in particular showed a burst of M&A activity. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins me now with more contractor M&A trends. Is M&A activity still on the rise? Did the pandemic put a damper on it? Tell us more what's going on, Alex. Tom, it actually looks pretty good. Uh, Let me give you some of the numbers. Before the last 10-year period, it was cruising along at, say, 50 to 75 deals a year in the government services sector. Then about 10 years ago, it started bumping up to closer to 100 a year. All of the sudden in 2021, there were 180 transactions done. I'm not sure what happened. Maybe it was kind of a black swan activity. It bumped down to 110 last year. But all the indicators say it's going to stick there around 110 or even go up a little bit. And that's not even the whole story. The money being raised to fund these deals is pretty extraordinary. This is Kate Trundle, managing director at investment banking firm Kips DeSanto. But when you have that much buyer demand and a lot of these private equity funds have raised large funds, either as new entrants coming in, plus those that have been kind of legacy investors in the space, like the Arlington's, the Veritas, they've been raising massive funds, right? Arlington used to be executing out of an $800 million fund. Then they raised a $1.8 billion fund. And now they're raising about a $3.5 billion fund. So lots of money chasing a pretty good number of deals. Why do the good money think this is such a great investment to get into this market and to effectuate these mergers and acquisitions? Well, Tom, there seem to be a lot of reasons for it. These companies fill a mid-tier gap for investors. The government provides a pretty stable marketplace. There's room for expansion. Kate Trundle says a lot of equity buyers are driven to buy add-ons for acquisitions in companies they already invested in. And then you have thousands of sub $100 million companies from a small business perspective, and you have a handful of billion dollar plus companies, and uh, everything's kind of built up by private equity. So the companies are pretty predictable and highly leverageable. In many cases, these private equity firms are looking to exit, and acquisition is a way for them to do that. Here's John Sung, a managing director at financial services company Baird. The increase in interest and motivation for private equity in our market today is increasing mostly because of the commercial markets have been so constrained. The overall market dynamics right now have been very, very difficult. And so you see a more of a flight to quality. Our market is really defined mostly on, on budgetary spends. And as we know, it's you know, government budgets just don't go down, right? Uh, they're continuing to increase and it gives a lot of visibility. And so we are seeing larger commercial entities like an IBM, for example, looking to have a stronger foothold within the federal space. Yeah, nobody knows more about this than Song, that's for sure. And there was one particularly large deal that seems to be illustrative of all of this, Alex. Yeah, that's right. Last December, IBM Consulting announced they made a deal to acquire Octo Consulting. The price tag on that deal, one and a quarter billion. 
It brought 1,500 new employees to IBM Consulting. And Octo was a pretty big company on its own. It's an IT and digital service provider. It contracts with the government. The Veterans Affairs Department is actually one of its biggest clients. And Octo had already acquired four companies in and of its own. So for IBM, the acquisition allowed them to take a bigger step into government services. This is Susan Wedge, a managing partner for U.S. public and federal markets at IBM. We want to double our business in the next three years. You don't do that by doing more of the same. So I think we're coming into this from the perspective of we know we need to change our business. We know we need to learn from the best of Octo and the best of IBM, right, and bring those together to create this third culture uh, really grounded in that purpose. So it's... um, we have lofty goals to do that. We've got to change the way that we're doing things as well. And hope, and she hopes that Octo will do better for IBM than, say, Watson did. And this is not the only company IBM has bought, has it? Ever since Arvind Krishna became CEO of the company in April of 2020, IBM acquired more than 25 companies focusing on hybrid cloud and artificial intelligence capabilities. Octo counted as one of eight acquisitions in, for IBM in 2022 alone. So both companies talked about acquisition as sort of a dating process to figure out if two companies are compatible. They meet, they talk about their values and goals. Here's Octo founder Mehul Sagani. There's a number of different things as we were integrating cultures that you know we took as, as lessons learned. And what we've been fortunate here early on in this you know, marriage, and it was a whirlwind romance, as I like to say, uh, you know, leading up to it, but you know, what we've been able to do in partnership is really lay out some things that we think are core tenets to the cultural fabric uh, of Octo. All right. We should also include the fact that IBM is divesting itself of certain things. They're trying to sell the whole weather business they acquired a few years ago and divest of that. So maybe some more concentration. And the other question I had for you, Alex, in the conference that you attended, the WashTech conference, laying out this summary of mergers and acquisitions, was there any indication of whether the defense side is more active or less active relative to the civilian side? The defense side is always big money. They're always mentioning defense. And those contracts, as you can see from the budget, just keep going up and adding more dollar value. And what do companies look for that constitutes a good deal? They're looking for expansion in areas that may they may not have, but things that are, you know, a good combination with what they already do have. Like Mr. Sangani talked about the fact that he was an IT company that did consulting, and IBM Consulting was a consulting company that did IT. And so it was a marriage of two different skills with different emphases. And I, I think that's it. You know, obviously looking for a company that brings your weak points into a stronger position. Right. And did the participants also note the fact that the Federal Trade Commission is sort of hyperactive in looking at some of these things? Booz Allen had trouble and Accenture has had trouble making some acquisitions that in at least some regulators' eyes looked anti-competitive. But they went through in the end because the government was wrong in that case. Did that come up? They didn't really talk about that. But, Tom, I think that would be a great topic for another time for us. All right. Well, I'm available. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, new plans to categorize Americans for the census could leave out one important group. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Biden administration has proposed new ways to classify people for the 2030 census with more racial groups than ever. But my next guest says the changes could still end up misrepresenting Native Americans. Robert Maxim is senior research associate at Brookings, and he joins me now. Mr. Maxim, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. It's great to be with you. And frame for us what they're trying to do generally here, because I guess there's utility. It seems like all Americans will be a different colored bead in a very giant egg crate. Is that what they're driving at? Well, there absolutely is utility in the changes that they're making to the upcoming census. And it's really two major ones that are being explored. The first is adding, you know, a new category for Middle Eastern and North African people. You know, that's obviously a really important distinction. Currently, those individuals are classified as white. And I think that there's a lot of folks of Middle Eastern and North African descent that would not identify as white in the way that most Americans think about it. And then the second is they're updating the question about race or ethnicity. They're combining the two. So currently, there's a little bit of a confusing distinction where some categories are race and then Hispanic or Latino is an ethnicity. And I think most folks don't really think about the difference between those on a day-to-day basis. And so they're combining the two in hopes of you know, making data collection more streamlined. Got it. And so how does that apply to the people that we would call Native Americans, which is actually more than one group in itself, correct? Absolutely. So I'll say a couple things. You know, the first is that the way that the federal government currently collects and aggregates racial data means that American Indians and Alaska Natives, who, you know, we in our piece collectively refer to as Native Americans, are underreported in government data sets and non-government research. And the reason that is, is because, well, about 87% of white Americans, 88% of black Americans, and 83% of Asian Americans are classified as one race alone. Just 39% of Native Americans are. And so that makes a huge difference when you think about the way that data is presented. When you see all these columns that say, you know, white, black, Asian, American Indian, and then there's a two or more races bucket. Well, almost six out of 10 Native Americans are kicked into that two or more races bucket. And that really affects, you know, how data is presented about Native American people. Well, that is an interesting phenomenon just from a math standpoint, because if they are no longer any of those other races and now are Alaska Native or lower North American Native, what we used to call Indians, which was kind of the wrong word because Christopher Columbus thought he was in India. That's right. <laughs> he didn't yeah. know about North America, but he, he was a little lost. <laughs> he was, well, you know, they were still discovering the rest of the globe at that point. <laughs> then those people would be withdrawn from where they have been traditionally counted. So all the numbers would change then, right? Yeah. And, you know, the individuals that are included in data around American Indian, Alaska Native, they are. You know, they are indigenous people and they're counted in the right place. The challenge is most people who are American Indian are now kind of kicked into another bucket. And the reason that is, it's it's kind of a function of exactly what you're talking about. This 400 years of colonization that has affected the identity of people that are called Native Americans today. And, and you were exactly right at the start of the show to say, you know, it's not just one group of people. There are 574 federally recognized tribes. There are hundreds of other state and unrecognized tribes in in the U.S. today. 
And so it's a really diverse group. And, and that's where it gets a little complicated because of the diversity of Native people and because of this really intermarriage that has happened over the course of 400 years, Native identity is a lot more complex than just a single racial category. We're speaking with Robert Maxim. He's Senior Research Associate at Brookings. I mean, you could also make the argument perhaps that nobody should be counted as anything but is either a citizen or non-citizen of the United States because, like you say, there's 574 tribes. And before the people from Europe and so on arrived in what is now North America, those tribes weren't exactly a solidarity group either. Well, and here, here's what I'll say to point around kind of the modern measurement of people by race, right? I think it's at this point pretty widely known that race itself is kind of a construct, right? It's not really rooted in any sort of biology. Um, but what does happen is there are important social differences across different racial groups. You know, you see outcomes that are a function of race. And so it's obviously important, you know, I think to continue measuring outcomes by race and seeing how different groups in America are faring. What's important, though, is making sure when we're actually having these conversations that the classifications that we're using are accurate for the groups we're talking about. And, and when it comes to Native people, it's quite complex because of that exact background that you're talking about. And sometimes when other people assign a name or an identity to a group, that group doesn't necessarily accept it. I'm thinking of the so-called Latin X term mm. is mm -hmm. not real popular among people that are of Spanish descent. And, you know, especially for Native people, right, when we talk about our identity, you know, we identify with our tribe or nation first and foremost, you know, in the same way that someone from Asia would identify as Chinese or Korean or Indian rather than Asian on a day-to-day -day basis. But because we're in what is now one country, the United States, we're kind of all lumped in as one racial group. I'll just say one more thing. The other distinction here with Native people is there's a long history of treaties between Native people and the U.S. government. And that makes Native Americans a bit unique. We are the only racial group that's also a political classification. And so that has all sorts of interesting implications. Yeah, that's interesting insight. And if you add all of this up and these changes go through, then what would the Census Bureau have to do differently other than calculate, you know, put it on the forms and do different numerical calculations? How would that affect the output of the Census Bureau in terms of their decennial product? What I'll say is the Census Bureau in many ways is just kind of following directions it gets. The agency that this really matters for is one called the Office of Management and Budget, and it's in the White House. And yeah, they we know them the well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know OMB quite well. And so they set the rules for every federal agency around you know, how racial data can be collected, uh, aggregated, and published. And so there are a couple different things that they can do. They don't even need to wait till 2030, in my opinion. You know, they could start right now with publishing more inclusive data around American Indians and Alaska Natives, people that aren't just American Indian Alaska Native alone, but in combination with another race and make that really standard. When it comes to 2030, the U.S. doesn't need to necessarily uh, reinvent the wheel. Many other countries, think about Canada, think about Australia, ask about indigenous identity in a separate question from the way they handle race or ancestry. And that really decouples this idea, again, of Native people as a political group versus just one of many races. And so that's something that the U.S. government could explore as well. 
And just out of curiosity, what is your background that brings you to an interest in this particular area of study? Because it's something I frankly have not looked at that closely in, yeah, in 9,000 interviews. Right. You know, in some ways I'm writing kind of from a personal experience as well as a professional experience. So I'm a Brookings researcher, but I'm also a mixed race Mashpee Wampanoag person. So my father is Wampanoag. We are the indigenous people of Southeast Massachusetts. You know, most Americans would think of us as uh, we are the indigenous people who first made contact with the Mayflower. So, you know, people learn about us every year in school, right? And then my mom is white. And so for me, my entire life growing up, I found myself never really included in that Native American or American Indian category. I was kind of kicked into this two or more races bucket. And I said, well, you know what? Like, I am equally a citizen of my tribe as any other person. And it turns out a significant portion, maybe half or more of Native people have had that same lived experience. And so, you know, the way that we approach this, I think, really needs to align better with the lived experience of many Native people. And again, just out of curiosity, does the tribe with which you identify, does it still have corporeal existence in that part of Massachusetts? Oh, yeah. We have a, a reservation in southeast Massachusetts. You know, we have a strong presence throughout the region. Every other street side in uh, in southeast Massachusetts is the Wampanoag word. So we, we absolutely have, you know, both a cultural and, a, you know, governmental and, and legal presence in, in the area. And the last thing I'll say is I think this goes for a lot of tribes. We have a really diverse citizenship. You know, there are folks in our tribe that you would look at and think are black, are Asian, are Hispanic, are white. And there are some folks that, of course, look like what most people think Native Americans look like. And it's really not about race. It's about citizenship and kinship. And, you know, I think that there's more that the federal government can do to reflect that. All right. Fascinating. Robert Maxim is Senior Research Associate at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was great to be with you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, even with the ups and downs, the Thrift Savings Plan is looking solid again. But first, got thoughts on how to manage in the government? There's a contest for that. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For 25 years, IT giant IBM has operated a government-focused think tank. It's called the IBM Center for the Business of Government. To commemorate, the center is holding an essay contest. It'll take the form of a challenge grant and seeks essays on the future of government. For details, the center's executive director, Dan Chenock. Dan, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Always good to talk to you. So tell us what you're doing here. Are you seeking essays or are the essays en route to something larger in terms of a challenge grant? So a little of both. We always are thinking about what's next for government. And to commemorate our 25th year since our founding, we wanted to have people in government, academics who are working and studying government, nonprofit partners, give us ideas about what the future holds in a number of different areas. We've done these kinds of challenge grants before, and it really sparks a lot of imagination across the field in terms of what can come next and and what are some good ideas for what government might look like in the future and how to get there. And you have some specific areas you're actually looking to look into. Yes, correct. So we picked six domains, and one could write about any one or a combination. And the domains are artificial intelligence, data and evidence, 
Number three is cloud. Four is cyber. Five is shared services. And six is customer experience. And within each domain, we kind of have a little statement of the state of play, if you will, in terms of how government's addressing that domain and how partners are helping government advance. And then some questions to stoke some ideas. And the process will work that people will send us sort of an abstract, if you will. And then we will review the submissions and we'll give grants with some stipends to write up a longer essay for those that are sort of reached the top of the pile. And definitely a technology application focus here. You're not looking at the government as an employer or training or best places to work, that kind of focus that a lot of other organizations are focusing on these days. We're looking at the application of these technologies to do the business of government better. So yes, they are kind of technologies at the front end, although we are looking at shared services, which is a broader element and how agencies set up customer experience effectively, which is a broader topic. And then more importantly, we're looking at not just, you know, what's cool about the technology and where is it going to be in five years, but how can this help agencies deliver a better service to constituents receiving things like student aid or grants from HHS or services through the IRS? Can you be open to something that may not be on the list that nobody's thought of? We framed the challenge grant with these six areas. But if somebody has a brilliant idea aside from the six, whether it's through the challenge grant or otherwise, we're always open to a dialogue on that. And to whom is this open? Can anybody submit something or do they have to be a federal employee? No, anybody can submit. In fact, in the last challenge grant we did for our 20th anniversary, we had a number of state government employees, two from King County, Washington, who submitted and responded. So we welcome ideas from federal employees, from federal partners, from academics, uh, really anybody. It's best idea wins. And we'll go that way. I was going to say the IBM Center doesn't simply focus on federal either, does it? No, we have a, a remit that's state and local and that's also international. Um, we do a lot of work with OECD on topics, and we have a number of large initiatives that are international in scope as well. And we've really, over the 25 years, sort of expanded that work as governments have learned that good ideas, good thinking from academics who are really studying these issues and packaging those ideas in a way that's usable by government and implementable is a niche that hadn't really been filled. The center kind of sits at that cross-section between academic research and government practice, and that's really what we are trying to focus on here as well. We're speaking with Dan Chenock. He's executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government and also former federal official himself way back. And in the challenge grant, what is the grant part of it? In other words, somebody's going to judge these and then you'll get more extensive essays. Then what happens? We provide the stipend to those people that are awarded the extensive essays. We will write in the later part of the year, we're still kind of determining the shape of this. It might be in a book form or it might be a long form report, but we'll publish the essays. We'll work with the authors uh, who are the winners to publish. We'll also look for ideas even from essays that didn't necessarily win the challenge grant. There might be good ideas across a range of essays. So we're going to look for themes and work with a variety of folks on that. And then we'll release this at a 25th anniversary event that we're planning on in uh, late fall, maybe a Christmas holiday type thing or a holiday season activity. So Tom, you'll be invited. All right. I'll look forward to it. We'll make it a party. And by the way, the prize is $2,500 to the finalists. $2,500 to the finalists. And by the way, we should talk about the center itself. I mean, you described a little bit about what it does, but what are your priorities? What do you see ahead? I mean, you've been looking at this. You've probably been 20 years at the IBM Center and then spent a long time at OMB. So what do you see ahead, Dan? 
Yeah, actually, I've been here about 10 years, but uh, time flies. Uh, (laughs) It seems like 20. seems like you've always been there. So we have a number of priorities that we're working on this year in addition to the challenge grants. One is we're working with the National Academy of Public Administration on a series of convenings called Future Shocks, which are designed to help the U.S. and foreign governments, allied partners, and state and local governments as well, kind of understand how to get better for the next risk event that can happen which used to be called black swans, but are increasingly getting more light and color because they're getting more frequent. Or it's more a flock of black swans. Right. So most of the time people have treated these in particular domains like cyber, supply chain, climate. There are skills and capabilities within those domains that carry across for learning, but people don't necessarily think about it that way. So we're convening a series of sessions in the U.S., and working with the Organization for Economic and Cooperation Development overseas to address sort of what are the learnings in each of these areas, and then how can one area teach another? So how can responding to a cyber incident teach people who are in supply chain management about how to understand sort of the cyber risks in a supply chain? Or how can we develop workforce skills that can enable government to be better able to anticipate and respond to disasters? And for each of these, we're writing reports And we're going to have a big capstone event at the National Academy for Public Administration fall meeting in November. Chris Mim, the former GAO uh, Director of Strategic Issues, I'm sure a frequent guest of yours uh, in the past, is actually our integrating author. And Chris, after leaving GAO, has been working with the UN and the World Health Organization, among other places. So we're we're fortunate to have Chris. And we've had Tony Scott, as you uh, know, Tom, on your show recently, who wrote the report on cyber. So that's one set of initiatives. Another is... A really different domain, but in the military and intelligence context, we're working with the Institute for the Study of War, a group that's well known because they produce the maps that are often in the paper on the Ukraine conflict. We're working with them on how do you visualize information operations during time of warfare or uh, generally. So we know how to do a map of tanks. The military has lots of ways to articulate different domains of warfare. We don't really have a discipline for how do you articulate information operations in a visual form. And so we've been holding uh, roundtable discussions with defense leaders, intelligence leaders, both in the U.S., Europe, and with our allied partners in the Pacific. And we'll be releasing a paper on that uh, in May where we try to advance the state of the art. So those are two of our major projects this year, in addition to our ongoing work with authors to publish research that benefits government. Sounds like you could update the great drawings of the great late Edward Tufte here in terms of graphicizing <laughs> of the art of war. <laughs> I studied Tufty in grad school. I remember those well. It's amazing how many disciplines do study him. Dan Chenock is executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate being here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the essay contest at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, even with the ups and downs, the Thrift Savings Plan is looking solid again. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Investments can change seemingly as fast as the weather. 
as anyone with a thrift savings plan account can testify. Well, we can't forecast the investment weather, but we can look at the recent trends, which we'll do right now with certified financial planner Art Stein. Art, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me back. And let's talk about the last quarter of the TSP. I think at the end of last year, people were saying, happy days are here again, but I don't know. It doesn't quite look that way, does it? Well, this last quarter was a whole lot better than uh, last year where everything except the G fund had a solidly negative rate of return. And at least for the first three months of the year, everything has a positive rate of return. Uh, One unusual thing is that the I fund, the international stock fund, outperformed both the U.S. stock funds. And actually, that same thing is true over the last 12 months, where the U.S. stock funds are negative and the I fund is positive. And of course, that's something that we're seeing in international stocks just in general, that they've just had a very good quarter. One of the reasons being is that they've been beaten down so much that they've become quite a good buy. And international covers a lot of territory. Are these this particular I-Fund, the TSP I-Fund, is that mostly centered in Europe or does it have South America yeah. and maybe some African country, Asian countries? No. Uh, the international stock fund, the I-Fund, the index that's used doesn't cover a lot of territory. It's very narrowly focused. It's European countries, 25% is in British stock, and then various other European countries, 25% is in Japanese stocks, and then Australia, New Zealand, but for some reason, no investments in Canada, which I've never understood, which pretty much is a developed market as far as I'm concerned. Because that's the other thing about the international, the I-Fund in the TSP, it's only developed countries. So there's no investments in Latin America, many Asian countries outside Japan. TSP tried to change that to go to an index that made more sense, but they would were blocked by Congress because the index they were going to use invested in Chinese stocks. So it became a political issue, which, and I understand it, and actually relations with China are much worse now than they were when this whole controversy took place. So it's probably a good thing they didn't switch to that index, but it would be nice if they could switch to an index, broader coverage, but no China. All right. So the iFund, then, to get back to whatever it is, interesting Great Britain and Japan, two of the sort of shrinking and low-growth nations of the world. Exactly. This is the problem. But the stocks at least did well in the last quarter. Yeah, yeah. And and what about the rest of the funds? I mean, the G Fund, we know what that does. But besides the I and the uh, U.S. index, what are the other choices and how do they do? Well, we should mention the G Fund just for a second, because with the increase in interest rates, the G Fund return was really quite good. It was 1% for the quarter, you know, which is great. And um, bond fund was up 3%, C Fund up 7.5%, and the S Fund was up 6%. So just a really great quarter. And so for the people who were patient and stayed invested in those funds and didn't run to the G fund, they were definitely rewarded. Right. So then the classic kind of distribution that people had for many, many years seems to be coming back into the vogue or at least the good way to approach it for the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, these kinds of returns where the stock funds, you know, have about twice the rate of return of the bond funds or even more when you look at the G fund. 
historically, that's what we've seen over long periods of time. And that's why stocks have been a good investment for long-term investors, because they did have a much higher rate of return than the bond funds. Now, past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but there's no reason to think that will not continue. And let's talk about that G fund now. It has exceeded the popularity of the C fund? Yeah. You know, for many years, the G fund was by far the most popular fund. And that gradually changed over time. So in 2009, almost 50% of TSP investments were in the G fund and less than 25% were in the C fund, which has always been the next most popular fund. But the percentage in G gradually declined and the percentage in C gradually increased until just about in 2021, the percentage invested in C actually exceeded G for the first time ever. But since the market started declining, G funds become more popular, C funds become less popular. Now there is once again more in G than C, which is an S&P 500 stock index fund. And it's not by a big amount, not by a large amount, but still I notice it because it makes me think that people are reacting to the decline in stocks by selling, you know, maybe after the stocks have gone down uh, you know, getting nervous, selling at a loss, putting their money in G. And then the question becomes, well, when are they going to, you know, switch that? When are they going to go back to the stock funds? And most people don't. I mean, in, you know, my experience by far, most people never go back into uh, the stock funds once they pull out. Could it be also that people simply stopped putting in the C and for that duration of that horrible year of 2022, diverted what would have gone into the sea as new investments, you know, their deductions from their payroll toward investment, went to the G instead of the C, and therefore the G kind of caught up. I mean, we can't necessarily say that it was withdrawals from the C in favor of the G. It just could have been a cessation of contributions to the C, whereas people went to the G instead because that did pretty well in 2022 relative to everything else. I agree completely. We don't know. And, um, you know, it'd be very interesting, you know, if someone was able to do a poll or something of TSP investors. Uh, the other problem that I have is TSP releases a graph with these percentages, but they don't release a table that shows the actual exact percentages over time, like on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. If they did, that would allow us to actually analyze uh, investment flows, compare it to uh, stock market uh, increases and decreases. You know, it would be a very interesting way to look at it. But we can't do that, so we can't. All right. And while we have you, what's going on with the mutual fund window? That really is, uh, to me, a very uh, interesting situation. So the mutual fund window was open last year in June, and it allowed a certain amount, not a large amount, but a certain amount of funds in the TSP to invested in a range of around four or 5,000 different mutual funds. And 
you know, there are a lot of details on that and the amount that can be taken out is limited. But what I noticed, and this is in the uh, January 31st statistical report that the uh, board puts out, the Federal Retirement Investment Board, I think it's say, that in June, when the mutual fund window started, there was almost $60 million invested. And that has declined now to where there's only, there's less than 20 million invested, which is a big decline. The other thing, but at the same time, the number of accounts has increased from 1,000 to, I don't know, it's about 3,000. So it's like more people putting in smaller amounts, much smaller amounts. You know, to me, that's just a very surprising result. Well, uh, now, the mutual fund window is something that's also available in 401ks in the private sector. My understanding is, you know, from what I've read, is that in general, in 401ks, some people take advantage of it, but it's not a very popular option. It certainly includes, uh, it requires more work, more knowledge, trying to compare 5,000 different mutual funds, you know, not an easy thing to do. But for people who, for instance, wanted to invest in ESG funds, environmentally, correct funds, politically or socially correct funds, even religious, the religiously based funds, and they are out there. It does allow them to do that, but it doesn't appear that much money is going to that in the TSP. And that's kind of been the experience in the private sector, too. Well, federal investors are simply conservative investors, not politically, but financially. Uh, could be, but I don't know why the number is going down. You know, that was my surprise. I don't know why the dollar amount is declining. Again, we just don't know. Certified financial planner Art Stein, as always, thanks so much for the analysis. Okay. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives is not known for jumping into the latest technology with both feet. ATF, like many of its brethren in the Justice Department, takes a cautious approach to using commercial cloud computing or so-called DevSecOps for software development. For how the agency is working to overcome this apprehension, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the ATF's chief technology officer, Mason McDaniel. Two, five years ago, we were running everything out of our on-premise data center, and we were at best, at best, doing a push to production per month with mostly just bug fixes, minor changes, not doing much system enhancement at all. They were largely static systems. They largely looked like they did 10 years ago. They really had not changed much. Now, most of our systems are now running production in the cloud, full automation underneath it, infrastructure automation, deployment automation. And now we are pushing multiple deployments to production per week. At times, we're doing one production push per day. And the applications themselves are evolving. And that has led to a culture change where we were very project-centered before, where any change was made within the context of a project. And and from our users' perspective, if they didn't get the changes in in that project, they were never going to see them. 
So it was really difficult to get a final approval for something to go live because there were always features that people wanted that weren't in there. But now they have seen that they put a request for a feature in, it gets added into the backlog. They help to set our priorities and they see those coming through into production quickly. And it started getting them thinking about evolution. What can these systems do? How can they get better instead of just accepting that things aren't going to change? That change, what has that meant for, if you will, generally speaking, because I know every missionary is a little different for the people in the field, for the people at headquarters, for the people in the back office. What is this ability to, to create a CICD pipeline, to go to DevSecOps, to be more agile? What has that meant for the mission areas and the like? For the applications that we had in the, within the regulatory space that we went live with most recently, December 2021, it has once significantly helped the efficiency of individual internal users on just how much data they can process. It's as simple as the responsiveness of the applications. In some cases, our legacy applications would sit there with a blue spinning wheel of death running for five minutes between steps, and that is just wasted time. So simple scaling of the cloud and efficiency has helped them to speed up. Plus, we're able to start breaking down some of those barriers between the systems and help to remove some of those extra unnecessary steps, which has also helped to them to process data through, get more throughput through as well. And they're starting to think about how would they like to do business? What kind of business process changes would they like to see? And we're now capturing those so that we can start laying the groundwork to go ahead and do that and and really lead to higher level restructuring, reinventing of our processes. When you look at back over the last few years, what percentage of applications, systems, networks, however you want to kind of put a number on it as best as you can, are in the cloud now versus several years ago? Are you 80% in the cloud, 20% in the cloud? Have you looked at it that way? Yes. We're about 80% in the cloud now. And a few years ago, we were zero. It, when we started out, there was nothing in the cloud. And in fact, we had a mandate to move all of our systems over into another law enforcement on-premise data center. So it actually was about a six month back and forth negotiation just to get approval to take our first system into the cloud. And now we've gone live with a, about 80%, maybe slightly more in the cloud and far more than that, a higher percentage of, than that of servers in our data center have already been shut down. And there's a really small number of servers left in our data center operating the remaining systems that we're looking to get over this year into the cloud. And I know you, like every agency, will operate in this hybrid environment for the near future. I imagine a lot of your systems are in private clouds, meaning like uh, not necessarily the public cloud, like a Azure or an AWS, but a private cloud within those commercial cloud, or do you're using government-only, government-sponsored private cloud? Is there anything you can offer on that? Private cloud has, to me, often been something that organizations use to cloud wash on-premise infrastructure, and they just rebrand their on-prem infrastructure as a private cloud. We're moving all of our systems into, the, it's the GovCloud regions of the commercial cloud providers. But we have some in the Microsoft platform, largely on the SaaS side, Office 365, things of that sort. Most of our infrastructure and infrastructure as a service is in AWS within the GovCloud region. Looking forward as you 
continue this modernization effort, what are some of those next steps you're looking at? What are some of your priorities, if you will, for 2023 and beyond? Finish migrating our systems into the cloud. Get those last remaining applications that we're still in the process of refactoring and migrating. Get those into the cloud. And then make use of all of those automation features that we have to really start focusing on fixing the business processes. Get rid of a lot of the redundancy and start automating a lot of the interfaces and interconnections between our systems that will continue helping our users to be a lot more efficient. You mentioned the idea of business process engineering, or you mentioned the idea of looking at your business processes, putting in a, better, a different governance structure. How difficult was it to take a look at all those policies and go, we have to start over? I mean, that's a, that's a seems to be a huge lift. Can you just walk me through a little bit the how you went about it and how you got that, if you will, through, forgive me, the lawyers? <laughs> it has been a long journey. We started out for a year trying to reassess our existing governance processes and, and policy documents and rewrite them and edit them. And we eventually gave up on that. We took the lessons learned on the difficulties that we ran into doing that, but then started over and just do, did a complete ground up rewrite of how we thought IT governance really should work within the uh, bounds, of course, of DOJ's governance framework. So we had to make sure we were consistent with that but did a complete rewrite first of the overall framework and concept of how we wanted to govern things and then breaking down into the specific policy documents. And we have that done and drafted. We've been operating and moving toward that for quite a few of them. But you're right, it's the review, it's the lawyer approval, and it's just the general business approval to get those institutionalized as formal policies that takes a long time. A couple have made it through, but a lot of them are still going through that process. So we're, we're running them as drafts, kind of acting uh, policies that we've put in place as a North Star saying, manage to this, even if it's not official policy, and we'll catch up with the formal approvals. Do you get a sense, like, we hope to get them through the finish line in 2023? Is it going to take a little longer? Do you, or is it so kind of outside of your purview because you've you've done your job and now it goes through that regular regulatory oversight process? The full approval process can vary widely and it's totally out of my control. My hope would be to get them through in this calendar year, yes, because we have them drafted now. I'm hoping to get kind of the bulk of the feedback here within the next week or two and incorporate so we should hopefully have final drafts for to update those folks that are doing the reviews and I would love to be able to get it through by the end of this year. Some of them can get through in a couple of months. Some of them can take more than a year to get through review. Mason McDaniel, Chief Technology Officer at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, part of the Justice Department, speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.